0: This uh, nomination hearing of Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we are here today to nominate for the Ms. Elizabeth Shortino to serve as United States Executive Director of the International Monetary Fund, the Honorable David Pressman to serve as Ambassador to Hungary, the Honorable Jeffrey uh, Pyatt to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources and the Honorable Robert Wood to serve as alternate alternate representative for special political affairs in the United Nations. I would like to congratulate each of you on your nominations. We thank you for your service. We thank your families who have served and will continue to serve beside you as you embark on your new post. Elizabeth uh, Shortino is nominated to be United States Executive Director of the International Monetary Fund. Ms. Shortino has spent 17 years as a dedicated public servant at the Office of Management and Budget and the Department of Treasury. Since February of 2021, Ms. Shortino has served as the acting U.S. Executive Director at the International Monetary Fund. U.S. leadership at the IMF will be crucial as Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine rages on further straining Ukraine's economy and jeopardizing global economic growth. Next, Ambassador David Pressman, nominated to be ambassador to Hungary. Ambassador Pressman previously served as US ambassador to the United Nations for special political affairs. Ambassador Pressman is a prominent international human rights lawyer. This experience will serve him well as ambassador to Hungary, where Prime Minister Viktor Orban continues to serve as a foe of democratic institutions and human rights. In this role, we will rely on you to champion the restoration of checks and balances, uh, support for an independent media, and support for LGBTQI rights that have come under assault under the Orban government. Next, uh, Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt, Uh, nominated to be Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources. Ambassador Pyatt is a dedicated public servant, having served most recently as ambassador to Greece and before that, ambassador to Ukraine. The Assistant Secretary for Energy Resources uh, will be a crucial part of the administration's efforts to lead a clean energy revolution. We need to cut fossil fuel demand and deploy renewable and energy-efficient technologies in order to provide real long-term security for ourselves and for our allies. As President Biden works to take short-term steps to support Europe in the face of war and disruption, I urge the administration to continue to direct investments, funding, and private sector collaborations towards the renewable energy and electrification solutions that will keep Americans and our allies and partners safe, healthy, and supplied. Uh, with uh, affordable energy. Um, uh, Ambassador Pyatt, I look forward to hearing how you will advance those goals as Assistant Secretary. And finally, I'd like to introduce Ambassador Robert Wood, who is nominated to be the alternate representative for Special Political Affairs at the United Nations. Ambassador Wood has extensive experience with multilateral bodies from his time as the U.S. Ambassador to the conference on disarmament, deputy chief of mission at the US mission to the European Union, and deputy chief of mission at the US mission of international organizations in Vienna, Austria. So we welcome uh, you as well, Ambassador Wood. And as we uh, continue uh, to navigate the pressing challenges to the international community posed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and North Korea's continued illicit development of weapons of mass destruction, We need to ensure uh, that our voice at the United Nations remains strong. We have to continue to build coalitions, even as Russia and China continue to serve as spoilers within the United Nations Security Council. So congratulations to each of you uh, on your nomination to uh, serve in these crucial points, uh, 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 posts. So now let me turn and recognize... Uh, The ranking member today, Senator Portman from Ohio.
1: Thank you, Senator Markey, and thank you for your perfect timing. Um, I apologize for being a couple minutes late. We are all juggling all of our uh, commitments this morning, but I'm delighted to be here. And particularly with uh, these nominees, thank you all for being willing to serve our our country. Um, We were just... uh, uh, told by Senator Markey some about your background, so I won't uh, go into that except to say that um, all of you are looking to join the ranks of some very uh, important uh, responsibilities. Elizabeth Shortino to be uh, at IMF, look forward to talking to you about that. A- ambassador Dave Pressman, U.S. Ambassador to Hungary. Uh, uh, Jeffrey <coughs> Pyatt, uh, who I got to know when he was Ambassador in Ukraine, to be Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources, and uh, Ambassador Robert Wood at the U.N. Uh, this is a critical time. I guess we always say that in global affairs, but I think it's not an overstatement to say that right now it's particularly difficult because it's a time of of great instability, uh, which requires U.S. leadership, in my view, on the world stage. So the positions you've been nominated to are all very important uh, and uh, maybe now more than ever. Uh, Ambassador Pyatt, energy security, as you know, is of critical importance as Russia continues to wage this war against Ukraine. $870 million a day is about what the Europeans are sending to Russia to help fund the war machine. And um, so we, we need to see a change there. And We're seeing it slowly, uh, more quickly if the United States uh, has an even stronger leadership role. Um, unfortunately, it, it took us a while to... Um, uh, work with the EU to get them to make any moves, but they have embargoed Russian coal now, uh, which will take effect in m- mid-August, as you know, and then they're phasing in this embargo on Russian oil. Um, I'd like to hear from you today, of course, about how we can be more helpful to accelerate the uh, Europe's independence from Russia. Strong concerns with our energy policies here at home because I, I don't think they're helping uh, right now, and um, so we need to do what we can to increase production in this country rather than rely on the Venezuelans and... and uh, Saudi Arabia's even, and uh, certainly the uh, the Iranian sources to backfill our own energy needs. Ambassador Pressman, Hungary has found itself in the middle of these conversations about European energy security and energy independence from Russia. Uh, They were a particularly difficult partner to deal with during Europe's attempts to agree to ban Russian oil. In fact, the compromise was required because of them. I have concerns with the influence of Russia and China and Hungary. I'd like to hear from you today about the dynamic and ways in which the United States can work to counter this and the ways in which you personally would work to do so. Ambassador Wood, no shortage of global issues before the Security Council. Uh, as was noted, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, the global food and energy crises, multiple humanitarian disasters. If confirmed, your plate will be full. So I want to talk to you about what your priorities will be at the UN, if confirmed, and how you plan to work with our partners and allies there to pursue uh, those priorities. And uh, we do have a lot of allies, and it turns out that um, Vladimir Putin's uh brutal and unwarranted attack on Ukraine has strengthened some of those alliances. I note that that the NATO meeting coming up will have uh, the heads of state from uh, countries like uh, South Korea and Japan and Australia and New Zealand attending uh, so Although they're not expanding NATO, they are in effect expanding its its reach by allying with us so closely. Ms. Shortino, inflation and energy prices continue to climb upwards. Of course, this is impacting us here at home, but also impacting emerging and developing countries around the world. And to compound that, of course, we have a sovereign country, Ukraine, that needs to be rebuilt. I'm interested, really interested in talking to you about that. I think that IMF can play a central role following on the $40 billion package that Senator Markey and I support it to help Ukraine. I would hope that the IMF can play a bigger role going forward uh, to help Ukraine get back on its feet. I would like to thank you all for being here again and, and again for stepping forward to serve your country and look forward to hearing from you.
0: Uh, thank you, Senator Portman. And now we'll turn to our opening statements from our witnesses, what each, would ask each of you to keep your statements to five minutes. Uh, uh, and uh, we'll begin with you, Ms. Uh, uh, Sciottino. Uh, whenever you uh, feel comfortable, please begin.
2: Thank you so much, Chairman Markey and Ranking Member uh, Portman and members of the committee. I am truly honored that President Biden has nominated me to serve as Executive Director of the United States to the International Monetary Fund. Uh, I'm also thankful for the support of Vice President Harris, Secretary Yellen, and Deputy Secretary Ariamo. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my husband, Michael Shortino, my mother, Peggy Demarest, and my son, Alex Shortino, behind me. I've spent the last 17 years of my career working in international affairs for the US government, serving administrations from both parties to advance US economic interests. My interest in public service took hold during my years at the University of North Carolina, where I majored in political science. Following graduation, I took a position in management consulting, but after four years of working on business strategy, I was drawn to public service. As a graduate student at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, I developed a passion for international economics and diplomacy, and specifically the role of the Bretton Woods institutions in the global economic order. I formally began my career in federal service at the Office of Management and Budget, overseeing State Department and USAID economic and development assistance programs. Four years later, I made the transition to the Treasury Department in the midst of the global financial crisis. My career at Treasury has spanned a wide range of international topics that have all on some level involved the use of IMF engagement to advance U.S. interests. As an economist working on Pakistan, I worked closely with the State Department, Defense Department, and USAID to leverage the IMF in enhancing U.S. national security interests in the region. As the Director of the Office of the Middle East and North Africa, I developed strong relationships with IMF staff and partnered with the IMF to design lending programs that would support Arab Spring countries in their economic transitions. Later, as Director of the International Monetary Policy Office, I led Treasury's engagement on IMF policies, IMF lending, and G7 and G20. I also spearheaded the US agenda for the G7 during its presidency in 2020 and oversaw the IMF response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The IMF has a pivotal role to play in supporting the global economy. It is truly a unique organization in its ability to rapidly mobilize support for countries in crisis. In response to the COVID-19 crisis, it mobilized $33 billion in emergency financing. More recently, it approved $1.4 billion in rapid financing to support Ukraine. Its engagement often provides a catalytic effect. Its sound policy advice and robust economic lending conditions can unlock other international support and market financing and facilitate critical transitions towards a stable and growing economic outlook. It is the only international institution charged with assessing exchange rate stability and global economic imbalances and its capacity development programs are of the highest caliber and provide much-needed support, particularly for low-income and fragile states. While the IMF has many strengths, it also faces challenges. It is an organization that boasts a broad and diverse membership, and leveraging the IMF's toolkit to advance U.S. interests requires active engagement with IMF management and other board members. Its lending programs need to incorporate measures to strengthen governance, fight corruption, and bolster anti-money laundering frameworks, which will help ensure that IMF funds and other funds are used appropriately. With low-income countries facing rising debt challenges, compounded by the increase in energy and food prices, the IMF has a significant role to play to support its poorest members. If confirmed a U.S. as U.S. Executive Director, I will work tirelessly to help ensure the IMF delivers on these future challenges while still executing its core mission. Building upon my experience, I will press for the IMF to call out unfair and opaque Chinese lending as part of its broader efforts to promote debt sustainability. I will ensure that U.S. interests are protected in the next review of the of IMF quota and governance reform, which is scheduled to conclude in 2023. I will take steps to make sure IMF lending is in line with and supports U.S. national and economic goals, including fighting corruption and money laundering. Finally, I will work to improve the operational effectiveness of the IMF as an institution. I look forward to regularly engaging with the U.S. Congress and this committee on all of these issues, and I would be honored to have the opportunity to serve in this role. I look forward to your questions today. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you very much. Now we'll turn to uh, you, Mr. Pressman, for your testimony.
3: Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Portman, distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to return to this committee as the president's nominee to serve as United States Ambassador in Hungary. I am grateful to President Biden and to Secretary Blinken for the opportunity, if confirmed, to join the exceptional team of public servants at Embassy Budapest at this time of enormous complexity and urgency. As you know, we meet against a backdrop of rising authoritarianism and democratic backsliding around the world. Vladimir Putin has once again attacked a sovereign democratic neighbor, flouting the rules-based international order and challenging the institutions that America and its partners stood up to protect it, including the United Nations Security Council, where I previously served as United States ambassador. Even for someone who has spent much of my career focused on the worst humanity has to offer, national security threats, human rights abuses, war crimes, the carnage Putin continues to wreak in Ukraine is staggering. But where Putin expected weakness, he has found strength. The Ukrainian people's courage and determination, to borrow the words of a former president, has, quote, lit a candle of hope and inspiration Reminding the world that brave hearts still exist to fight injustice. End quote. When President Reagan spoke those words, he was speaking of Hungary and Hungarians, who, like their Ukrainian neighbors today, inspired people everywhere with their bravery, their thirst for freedom, their zeal for democracy. In October 1956, Hungarian men and women took to the streets to, to stand up to Soviet oppression and demanded the right to control their destinies. They did so knowing that they could be imprisoned, tortured, or killed. Their courage changed the course of Hungary and Europe and inspired successive generations who chose to dedicate their lives to advancing dignity, freedom, and liberty, including me. Whether serving in government to advance our nation's interests in the Security Council or working outside of government to uphold human rights, I have always strived to dedicate myself to advancing the fundamental values that make our nation exceptional. If confirmed, I will bring that same passion for our interests and values to my work as ambassador to Hungary. Hungary is a longtime friend, ally and partner that makes significant contributions to common security objectives, such as combating terrorism, transnational crime and weapons proliferation. As a NATO ally, Hungary supports efforts to defend NATO's eastern flank at this critical moment and has been our partner in addressing challenges around the world, including in Afghanistan, Iraq and the Balkans. Hungary is also home to hundreds of U.S. companies, and the citizens of our nations take part in rich and growing cultural, educational and scientific exchanges. As both a NATO ally and a member of the European Union, Hungary joined the world in condemning Putin's unprovoked and brutal war in Ukraine and ultimately supported European Union efforts to impose severe costs on Putin. However, Hungary's reticence in that process and the obvious influence of Russia and China in Hungary and on its government are causes for serious concern, not just for the United States' interests or Europe's, but for the people of Hungary. If confirmed, combating the malign influence of Moscow and Beijing and preserving and indeed strengthening our collective response to Putin's war of choice will be a top priority. The threats to democracy in Hungary are real, and they merit our determined attention. Human rights, media freedom, and the rule of law are not nice-to-haves in Hungary or anywhere else. They are fundamental foundations for sustaining democracy and liberty and for meeting people's most basic needs. Today in Hungary, we see deeply troubling trends in each of these areas. If confirmed, I will support efforts to advance and protect these fundamental rights and transatlantic values. The opportunity to serve as U.S. ambassador to Hungary is an opportunity to bring our countries closer together and deepen ties between our economies and our people. And that is essential, because the fates of our nations are already very much linked. A free, safe, and secure Europe, of which Hungary is an integral part, is fundamental to a free, safe, and secure United States. The Hungarian people overwhelmingly view themselves, as we do, as an integral part of the transatlantic community. And that shared conviction is something we have a vital interest in preserving. No matter how difficult the issues we face, we will not lose sight of our common interest in restoring peace and security in Europe or of Hungary's role in that and we will not equivocate in advancing the cause of liberty and human dignity. If confirmed, I will do my utmost to bring us closer to each other and closer to democracy's promise. Thank you for your time and consideration. I'd be honored to answer your
0: questions. Thank you, Mr. President, very much. Now we'll recognize uh, Mr. Pyatt for your opening statement.
4: Thank you very much, Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Portman, members of the committee, for the honor of appearing again before you as President Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources. This is a pivotal time for the ENR Bureau, with headlines highlighting the importance of energy issues to our economy, <coughs> the daily lives of Americans, and to our national security. And I'm grateful for the confidence that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me with this nomination. I'd also like to introduce my wife, Mary, who's been my indispensable partner through a 33-year Foreign Service career and is joining me today. I'm grateful for the support that members of this committee and its staff have offered through my nine years as an American ambassador in Europe. And if confirmed, I'm committed to continuing that collaboration. Energy issues have been a major focus through the past two decades of my career. As US ambassador to Ukraine, I saw every day how Russia weaponized energy to undermine European sovereignty and facilitate corruption. Putin's brutal invasion has caused a global spike in energy prices, and Americans are suffering at the pump as a result. Our government is working tirelessly to minimize this pain, including (coughs) by leading historic coordinated releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, alongside our partners and allies. And if confirmed, I will continue ENR's efforts to bolster fuel supplies on the global market and thwart Russia's use of energy as a weapon of war. Energy diversification is crucial to this effort. Over six years in Athens, I was proud to partner with the Greek government to help that country become a leading ally promoting diversity of energy sources and routes in Europe. Importantly, Our embassy team also supported Greece to adopt one of the EU's most ambitious energy transition agendas, often partnering with American companies that are creating jobs here at home. This committee has shown welcome interest in China's efforts to dominate the supply chain for inputs like critical minerals, essential to the deployment of clean energy technologies. If confirmed, I commit to collaborating with you and your colleagues to secure critical mineral supply chains. I would also seek to sustain momentum for the Department of State's recently announced mineral security partnership to ensure U.S. access to minerals that go into clean tech, like batteries. I would work with the ENR team to build robust, responsible supply chains to support economic prosperity in the United States. Putin's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine has rewritten the global energy map, and the United States has worked with our allies and partners to address the severe impacts especially on Europe's energy security. Among Putin's many miscalculations in launching this war was his failure to anticipate how his actions would make our alliances stronger and accelerate energy transition. Together with the EU member states, global allies and partners and the private sector, we're redirecting energy supplies to Europe, increasing efficiency measures to reduce overall energy demand and accelerating the deployment of renewable technologies. My aim, if confirmed, will be to work with our allies and partners diplomatically and programmatically to free them from dependence on malign actors like Russia, to ensure that the United States and our partners benefit from the economic opportunities of the clean energy revolution, and to expedite a low carbon future that provides reliable and affordable energy to all segments of society. Earlier in my State Department career, I was honored to serve at the U.S. mission to the International Atomic Agency. Energy Agency in Vienna, where we worked intensively to advance clean nuclear power. I was also part of the negotiating team for the US-India Civil Nuclear Agreement, which played a critical role in unlocking the relationship between our two democracies. If confirmed, I will work closely with colleagues from the State Department's ISN Bureau and the Department of Energy to support American leadership in civil nuclear technology, including the new generation of small modular reactors that promise a reliable source of baseload power while advancing urgent climate goals. As a career economic officer, I take seriously the imperative to defend American commercial and technology leadership. If confirmed, I will work with business leaders and entrepreneurs to promote investment in US-led energy technologies across all sectors, especially those needed to realize a low-carbon future. I would look forward to working with ENR's energy transformation and programs offices to amplify this effort. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, Energy security is front page news right now. But as Senator Luger recognized in calling attention to these issues some two decades ago, our success requires persistent and strategically focused diplomacy to bolster our international energy partnerships. If confirmed, I would be honored to contribute to that task. Thank you for your consideration. And I look forward to answering your questions.
0: Thank you, Ambassador Pyatt. And I would also like to enter into the record this letter of support for Ambassador Pyatt's nomination from the American Jewish Committee and from the Hellenic American Leadership Council without objection be entered into the record. Uh, And uh, finally, uh, Ambassador Wood, uh, your opening statement, please.
5: Uh, Chairman Markey. Ranking Member Portman, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to come before you today as you take up my nomination to serve as United States Alternate Representative for Special Political Affairs at the United Nations in New York. I am greatly honored by the confidence and trust President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me through this nomination, and if confirmed by the Senate, I will defend to the utmost of my ability the fundamental values and interests of the American people. I also wish to thank my lovely wife Gita and son Jonathan for their love and support throughout our extraordinary Foreign Service journey. Without them, I would simply not be where I am today. As you know from reviewing my body of work over 34 years of government service, I have a great deal of experience working on multilateral issues that spans leadership roles in our missions to the European Union, the UN in Vienna, and the Conference on Disarmament. Multilateral diplomacy can be extremely challenging and frustrating yet it is so vitally important to the defense and promotion of American values and national security interests. During a previous assignment at the U.S. mission to the U.N. in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I witnessed the great work the U.N. can do. Uh, For example, the passage of U.N. Security Council Resolution 1267, which mandated sanctions on the Taliban and al-Qaeda, and of U.N. Security Council Resolution 1373, establishing the U.N. Security Council Counterterrorism Committee. The passage of these two critical measures exemplified what the founders of the UN had envisioned a body whose members would take prompt and effective action against those forces that represent serious threats to international peace and security. What also stood out for me at that time was just how essential US leadership was to the passage of those two resolutions. US leadership is especially crucial today as the international community confronts Russia's unprovoked and brutal war of aggression against the people and territory of Ukraine. Because of Russia's war on Ukraine, its international isolation is now profound. If confirmed, I will work with other nations at the UN to widen and deepen that isolation. Russia must understand that its military and political leadership will be held accountable for the death and destruction it has perpetrated upon Ukraine. Let there be no mistake about that. Mr. Chairman, There are, of course, other immense challenges around the globe that call out for urgent international action, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate crisis, the proliferation and use of weapons of mass destruction, growing anti-Semitism, and a rise in the number of autocratic regimes and the inherent threats they pose to freedom of expression. No single state can or should be expected to tackle any of these issues by itself. It is only through collective action that we can hope to successfully address major threats. In the Security Council and beyond, the relentless efforts of our adversaries to undermine the broader rules-based international order should be a call to action for all who believe in a transparent, open, and human rights-centric United Nations. If confirmed, I will work vigorously to push back on Russian (laughs) and Chinese efforts to reshape and undermine international law, institutions, and standards. The UN needs reform. If confirmed, one of my priorities will be to pursue President Biden's reform agenda for the United Nations. I will work tirelessly to ensure that American taxpayers' money is being well spent at the UN, that sexual exploitation and abuse are rooted out of UN peace operations, that the UN Secretary General is given the tools to better fight malign influence, that human rights remain at the core of the UN's work, and that everything possible is done to put an end to anti-Israel bias throughout the entire UN system. If confirmed, I would be honored to join Ambassador Thomas Greenfield and her team at the US Mission in New York in pushing forward the President's robust agenda at the United Nations, which includes increasing the number of qualified Americans employed at the world body, something, Mr. Chairman, I know you and your colleagues on this distinguished committee want to see as well. Again, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come before you. I look forward to answering any questions you may have.
0: Uh, Thank you, uh, Ambassador, very much, and we thank each of the witnesses. Uh, Before we go to questions and answers from the members of the committee, I have a few questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness of all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. I would ask each of you to provide just a yes or a no answer. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? I ask each of you to say yes. Yes.
4: Yes.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Thank you. Do you agree, um, do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes.
4: Yes. Yes.
0: Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact?
4: Yes. yes.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff?
4: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: yes. Uh, so we thank you for that. Uh, now we'll turn to a question. An answer period from the members, Ms. Shortino. Um, from your perspective, what role should the United States play in the uh, conversations to ensure that the IMF uh, and other international institutions uh, in, uh, guarantee that Ukraine gets the uh, the help that they need? Their economy uh, is collapsing by forty percent. Uh, what would you consider to be a the correct plan for us to implement in the months and years ahead.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for that very important question, Senator. Um, You know, I think there's quite a lot that the fund can do in terms of helping stabilize Ukraine's economy and help rebuild it. Um, I do want to just say at the outset, like others here, I strongly condemn Russia's illegal war against Ukraine. Um, This is a clear violation of rules and principles The IMF can really step forward. It already has stepped forward with $1.4 billion in emergency Mm -hmm. financing to help stabilize and and provide urgent needs to the uh, Ukraine foreign exchange reserves. Uh, The IMF can provide policy advice going forward in terms of what the Ukrainians can do in, in, to stabilize their economy and also help identify financing needs and gaps that need to be filled. And as Ukraine moves into the reconstruction phase, we hope at some point IMF, the IMF will be a key player in terms of laying out the foundation for what a stable macroeconomy looks like and helping lay that foundation for other institutions and bilateral and multilateral to step in. If confirmed, I would be working very hard to make sure that the IMF is very forward-leaning in terms of its engagement with Ukraine. I would be working with other shareholders at the IMF and with management and staff to advance all of these issues.
0: Uh, thank you. Um, Ambassador Pressman, according to Freedom House, Hungary stands out in Europe for its unparalleled democratic erosion over the last decade, undergoing the largest decline over uh, ever uh, measured in Freedom House's report on democracy in in Europe or Eurasia. Um, as ambassador, um, how would you engage with government officials, like-minded partners, and members of civil society to support independent media, advance the right of the LGBTQI community, and support democratic institutions?
3: Chairman Chairman Markey, thank you for the question. Um, You're you're absolutely correct with respect to the Freedom House ranking. In addition, I'd say that really, regardless of what political perspective, you look at the indicators in Hungary, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, the World Bank, and Freedom House have all looked at indicators in terms of democratic processes and institutions and have seen decline in Hungary. And that should be a cause of enormous concern. Hungary is our partner and our ally. But what we're seeing, we use the term democratic backsliding, and that's a little bit of a euphemism. I mean, I use the term as well, but it's, it, it belies the fact that it suggests that you know, as we're, we're climbing up Mount Olympus, so to speak, we're slipping back uh, unintentionally. And, and in fact, what we see in Hungary are affirmative choices by our partner that are having the, the, the predictable consequence of limiting uh, media freedom, of undermining the independence of the judiciary, of targeting vulnerable populations, And so it's incumbent upon us, if I'm confirmed, um, to engage unequivocally at the senior most political levels of the government to express our concerns, but also to be engaging with civil society and the rich civil society that does exist in Hungary and that has the space for which to operate has been limited to ensure that we're providing them with the most support we can to engage in the democratic process.
0: Thank you. Uh, you. And uh, to uh, you, Ambassador Pyatt, Um, According to the Biden administration's uh, review, the United States is 100% dependent on imports of 17 critical minerals and relies on China for refining and reprocessing. For instance, China processes 90% of the world's rare earth elements, 55% of the world's lithium, 65% of the world's cobalt. Uh, what's, What's your plan? For the United States to be able to respond to this challenge that our country has now been posed with.
4: Thank you, Chairman Markey. And let me start by saying that I think all of us as Americans should be concerned about the kind of monopoly that China has been able to achieve on these critical elements of the solar supply chain. Um, Similarly, uh, it's extremely important that the United States works with our partners and allies um, in order to ensure transparency and reliability of critical mineral supply chains around the world and to develop diversity of sources. In that regard, I'm proud to say that the ENR Bureau has really been ahead of the curve in developing policy mechanisms and multilateral structures to work with like minded countries on these issues through initiatives like the EITI, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, um, through the Mineral Security Partnership. Um, this these are the industries of the future and uh, mr chairman if you'll allow me a, a short comment about Massachusetts a, a great example is is an American company that I was able to work with as ambassador in Greece called Advent Technologies Advent is a pathbreaker on hydrogen fuel cell technology um, it has uh, an operation in Greece and I was very proud to support Advent in their advocacy before the Greek government and they just Just last week, um, received a positive signal they'll be getting about a billion dollars of EU funding uh, to deploy hydrogen fuel cell technologies in Western Macedonia, a region of Greece formerly dominated by coal mining. It's a great example of the work our embassies can do, but it's also a great example of how we need to build these international partnerships on these cutting-edge clean technologies. Um, This is an area where we can prevail. Thank you very much.
0: Excellent. No, thank you. And thank you for singling out a Massachusetts company. Much appreciated. Uh, Secretary, po- uh, 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 Senator Portman.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'll take that promotion. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that I've had the opportunity to work with uh, you, Ambassador Pyatt, in your role in Ukraine. I thought you did a, a very good job there, and particularly you know, advocating a stronger position vis-a-vis Russia. Uh, And I am glad you're stepping up to do this. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here, though, a little bit. Uh, You said, uh, I've seen how Russia weaponized energy. We need to free Europeans of malign actors like Russia. Um, That's good. I I just wonder if, if we're doing that. And I think about Nord Stream, too, what we did there. I mean, what this administration thought, as I understand it, is that if they approved Nord Stream 2, which the previous administration had disapproved, that somehow that would uh, make Russia a better partner. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think it made Russia a better partner?
4: So... Senator, let me start by saying thank you to you and all the members of the committee for the tremendous support that I enjoyed as US ambassador in Ukraine. Um, It made an extraordinary difference in the effectiveness of our diplomacy and our effort to support the choices of the Ukrainian people. On the question of energy, I'll I'll say a couple of quick things. Um, First, Nord Stream 2 was a bad deal. I wish it didn't take this brutal war to make the rest of the world understand that so clearly. um, Let me just
1: let me just uh, I've only got a few minutes here, but not just the rest of the world. What I'm asking you really is what lessons did you learn from that and what did the United States learn from it? Because I think we made a a mistake. I mean, some people say it gave Putin a green light. I don't go that far. I think he was he was seeing a green light everywhere he looked. Uh, But that was one of the reasons I think he decided, well, this is an indication, you know, that Europe and the United States are. Are not going to stand up to me because I've weaponized energy effectively. They've even now approved Nord Stream 2 to make them more dependent on Russian oil. Is that the lesson you get from it?
4: So, Senator, I, I would I would say Russia's manipulation continues today. You see it in the reduction of energy supplies, 40% reduction. Yeah, in um, Nord Stream 1, even now.
1: And, and let um, me let, let me ask you that because I, I I again I I don't see you're going to answer my first question directly. Um, but do you think we should? do something about Nord Stream 1?
4: I think we need to make sure that we do everything possible to ensure that people in Europe and everywhere else remember the way they felt on the 25th of February. That is to make sure that we make sure that nobody ever again says that Russia can be a reliable energy supplier, that we do everything possible to reduce Russian revenues from oil and gas, while also avoiding further disruption of a highly disrupted global energy marketplace. Let me just
1: suggest that we're doing the opposite in some regards. Um, not with regard to Nord Stream Two anymore, although we did, um, thanks to the Germans finally deciding, uh, rightly so. Uh, that's not the issue. But last week, the Biden administration Treasury Department announced an extension of HC licenses through December fifth. This is allowing energy transactions from energy tra- transactions to continue to be exempted from sanctions. Um, It otherwise would have ended tomorrow, June 24th. We've extended that license. So these Russian banks are now able to transact um, energy deals and support, the again, the continued reliance on on Russian energy. I pushed Treasury on this and was told the decision was made based on Europe's phased-in of the energy embargo, the oil embargo uh, in particular, and... um, Again, $870 million a day. That's what I'm told is the average daily receipts that Russia is receiving with a nice margin. Um, And that is one reason you see the ruble gaining strength. Uh, That's why you see the Russian economy not being nearly as debilitated as the Ukrainian economy. Um, And, you know, frankly, they're not feeling the pressure. So what do you think about that? Should that license have been uh, renewed uh, that was set to expire tomorrow?
4: So, Senator, I wasn't part of those policy deliberations. I don't have the benefit of all the perspectives, so I can't address that. What I will say is that it's very clear to me that we're in the early stages of this campaign um, and that if you look at what's happening in the Russian oil and gas industry, the gradual European phase-out, the European decision on insurance for seaborne Russian oil – The disengagement of international companies from the Russian oil and gas industry, which is taking away technology and will inevitably damage Russia's ability to produce oil and gas. All of these things will raise the cost for Vladimir Putin of the outrageous events that have unfolded since the 24th of February. Well,
1: as you know, I think we should be more aggressive, and uh, I hope you will be. And, you know, despite all the things you're saying, they're doing just fine, and it's not just China and India that's providing all these resources to fund the war machine. It's our, our allies in Europe and elsewhere. Um, so um, I have lots more questions uh, about Hungary and about the IMF. Hopefully, we have a second round. And uh, again, I'm, I'm glad you're stepping up. Uh, I hope you will be as aggressive as I saw you in Ukraine, where you actually helped push the administration policy toward a more realistic view of Russia. I want to see the same thing with regard to your new role, uh, with regard to our energy crisis we face. Thank you. Thank you, Senator.
6: Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you to my colleagues and congratulations to the nominees. <clears throat> what a what a qualified panel. I have questions for you, Ambassador Pyatt, and Ms. Shortino. So, um, Ambassador Pyatt, not a question, just an observation. And your position is really important, and I think it's really important the coordination that you'll do with other parts of the government, the Department of Energy and others. Um, I'm not an energy expert, but I have been confused by the administration's kind of messaging around energy policy. I give the Biden administration very high praise for the the degree to which they've snapped together um, a, a set of democratic allies, and not just NATO members, but others as well, to deal with the illegal invasion of Ukraine. I, I think that a lot is going to be written about The pre-negotiation of consequences, if there should be an invasion, won't we agree that this has to be done? The one piece, though, that I'm confused about in the whole um, uh, sort of comprehensive effort is the energy policy piece. And I I get it that it's complicated because there are a number of goals we're trying to achieve at the same time. We want to um, transition the United States and the world to a lower and no carbon energy future to save the planet. We're worried about pricing effects on Americans who are paying too much for gas at the pump. We want to help um, nations break free of reliance on petro-dictators, both for the good of the planet, but also because we don't want to have resources flowing to petro-dictators that will um, embolden them. These are, these are difficult goals to accomplish at the same time. And occasionally, there's timing that makes me confused. We had a hearing a couple weeks ago It was an energy-related hearing in this committee where sort of on the same day news was breaking that the president was going to be going to Saudi Arabia to try to get them to produce more energy. I've got major problems with any meeting with MBS because he's complicit in the murder of a Virginia journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who was a Washington Post journalist whose family still lives in Virginia. Uh, But at the same time as the news was coming out about the potential for this meeting, There was also an announcement out of a different part of the U.S. government that oil leases that some oil companies had in Alaska were being canceled. Now, those leases, if they hadn't been canceled, they weren't going to produce oil like this. But there was something odd about we're going to go to uh, uh, a dictator with blood on his hands and ask him to produce more energy and cancel leases at the same time. But again, there's multiple goals that we're trying to accomplish, and it's hard. But what what I really have not yet seen from the administration is sort of here's the near-term strategy that we're going to pursue to help backstop European allies and help wean them away from reliance on Russian energy. Here's what U.S. productive capacity can help them do in the short term. But here's the long-term strategy where we're going to help our allies move toward the lower and no-carbon energy future. That that obviously is a tall order to have a strategy that's got this near-term and medium-term and long-term approach to it. But I think you're going to be in a unique position because of the work that you've already done and the credibility you have to in the kind of interagency dialogue, whether it's at the White House or DOE or state, um, to to kind of balance these domestic policy imperatives with, with, uh, with foreign policy imperatives. So I, I think you're just perfectly suited for this role, but I'm just putting that marker down to say I'd like to see a lot more clarity from the administration about how we're going to try to accomplish these goals. Uh, We can't accomplish them all at once, but we can have a phased effort to do so. Now, Ms. Shortino, I want to talk to you. I'm very – I'm focused on the Americas a lot. I'm the chairman of the subcommittee over the Americas, and a nation that, you know, we have some opportunities with, but I'm I'm really worried about now is Argentina, um, the IMF. I think the largest loan that the IMF ever, ever did was a 2018 loan to Argentina, that frankly was to stabilize their economy, and it didn't really work. And and the IMF has studied. Okay, why why did we do it that way, and why didn't it work? Argentina is in some instances now getting closer to China, invited to be part of the BRICS meetings. Um, they're, they're the latest edition of the Belt and Road initiative with China. They're uh, I think participating in the Shanghai the the alternate uh, development bank that China's setting up is kind of a competitor to the IMF. So I would like you now I've really filibustered I've asked my question and I only have a few seconds left. Talk a little bit about what we might do with Argentina through the IMF to hopefully improve the relationships we have with them. And I apologize Mr. Chair for taking 5 minutes to ask a question but if you'll let her answer I would Really
0: appreciate it. No, absolutely. Please, send back.
2: A- absolutely. And Senator Kane, I could not share your concerns anymore. I mean, Argentina, it's a complicated case. You know, this is a country that has seen economic issues for decades now. There are no easy answers to be sure. Um, is, you know, can the IMF come in and bring this economy back to a place where it can be stable and it can eventually grow and reaccess markets? I certainly hope so. It's not going to be an easy task. That said, you know, this new IMF program that is in place, it does have the ability, if executed, to lay the foundation by bringing inflation down, bringing down the fiscal deficit, restoring confidence in markets that will actually move Argentina on the right path. Now, is that path going to be quick? Absolutely not. But can we start nudging them in that direction? Yes, I think we can. So, you know, if confirmed, I would really be working to see is Argentina, are we holding Argentina's feet to the fire? Are they executing on what they committed to do with the IMF? And if they're not, we need to have the courage to stand up and say, we don't support this. Um, If they are, I think we can work with other key members at the IMF to really push them in the right direction. It's going to take a lot of work, but I think the IMF is uniquely placed in its role to actually get them headed in that in that direction.
0: Thank
6: you so much. I appreciate my colleagues' patience.
0: I thank the senator. Uh, I know Senator Johnson had signed on to ask questions uh, remotely. Are you there, Senator Johnson? If not, Senator from New Hampshire, Senator Sheehan.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Um, and congratulations to each of you on your nominations, and thank you for your willingness to continue to serve the country. Um, Ambassador Pyatt, I'd like to begin with you because so much of our focus has been on how do we produce more energy, how do we replace what Russia's doing, but there hasn't been much on the demand side on energy, and at some point... Before the Russian invasion a couple of years ago, I remember seeing a report that showed that Ukraine was the most energy inefficient country um, in Europe. I wonder if you could talk about how we can get some of these countries focused on using less energy. Most of that technology is off the shelf. It can be um, put in very quickly, but I think there are a lot of um, both con- residential consumers and businesses that don't understand what a difference it would make if they swap out all their light bulbs and light fixtures and um, do other measures that would ensure that they're more efficient.
4: Thank you, Senator, and you're exactly right. And uh, Mary will tell you that when we were living in Kiev, because you had centralized heating, Every October, the centralized heating system would turn on, and then we would open all the windows, because that's how you kept the temperature manageable before it got really cold outside.
7: It's kind of like the capital here, that it's, uh, you know, the warmer it gets outside, the colder it gets in here.
4: And, and Senator, you know, the, the challenge is that in so much of Europe, um, a major demand driver for natural gas is, in fact, home heating. And so while Europe is not having the debate we're having here in the United States over $6 a gallon gasoline, what it is having is an enormous debate over home utility bills, which are going through the roof as gas prices have have quadrupled, grown up over seven times since the start of the the COVID pandemic. So making these changes is critically important. Um, Rewiring European energy infrastructure to electrify home heating uh, to introduce efficiency measures like smart thermostats. This is all going to take time, especially in developing countries, in the Western Balkans, in, in places like Ukraine. There's an important role to be played by USAID, by the Department of Energy, by ENR. And I, I will say, Senator, during my time in Kiev, I was really grateful for the interagency partnership that we had, largely led by ENR, by the way, but bringing together all these instruments of the U.S. government To help the Ukrainians reduce their dependence on Russia. Uh, It was a major accomplishment that almost simultaneous with the invasion, um, Ukraine switched its electricity grids over to the European grid. Thank goodness. That, That was the fruit of resources that this committee helped to provide, but work that started way back in 2014 in terms of modernizing the infrastructure. So you're exactly right, and certainly if confirmed. This will be part of the agenda that I will bring to the office.
7: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I know it's longer term, but I think it's very important to have that on the agenda. Um, Ms. Shortino, it's clear that part of what's happening in Ukraine with Russia is their effort to control the Black Sea to keep Ukraine from getting its grain out um, and the impact that that's having not just on Ukraine but on the rest of the world. Can you talk about whether IMF has a role in trying to
2: help put pressure on Russia. Absolutely. Um, And I think you raise a very valid concern, Um, I mean, the IMF has quite a few roles to play in this whole broader crisis. Uh, The first is to assess and provide countries with policy advice around these spillover impacts. Uh, It will be bringing forward a program soon for Egypt. This is one of the countries that is significantly impacted by higher food prices. It's also engaging in other countries as well. It's looking more broadly at the food crisis impact. Um, for all of these countries. Um, Its surveillance and its lending, its capacity development are are very key in terms of supporting the policy response. Uh, With regards to Russia, you know, I think in in this instance, really, if confirmed, my role would be to sort of minimize Russia's impact, Russia's voice at the fund, Um, you know, the fund – They have a responsibility to to do surveillance on the Russian economy. The Russians should allow them to do that because then we can see just how badly the economy is doing. Right now, Russia is not publishing a lot of that data. So if confirmed, you know, I would really push for the IMF to be doing that sort of analysis so that we can have an accurate picture of this, this what the effect has been on the Russian economy.
7: Well, I certainly hope that you and our other international institutions will voice the concern about what Russia is doing with respect to um, food stocks and the impact that that's having around the world and take the position that that is not acceptable and that we need to stand up to Putin on that. And uh, my view is we should work through the UN and escort ships into the Black Sea and get that grain out because we should not let Vladimir Putin starve millions of people in Africa and Latin America. Um, I know that my time is up, but I, I would just like to add, Ambassador Wood, the news reports yesterday and today have been about the devastating earthquake in Afghanistan. And obviously, given the role of the Taliban, it's the kind of international aid that might be coming is more difficult under the current circumstances. So I hope you at the UN will lobby the UN agencies that have continued to work in Afghanistan to ensure that we're doing everything possible to respond um, and also to address what's happening with women and girls in the country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Beautiful.
0: Uh, uh, Senator uh, Cardin. Well, thank you mr chairman uh, excuse, excuse me I, i've been told that senator booker has been waiting in line i apologize to you on on video if, if you don't mind senator cardin not a problem uh, senator booker if you are there you are recognized i
8: am here i just want to mark for history that this may be the only time in my life uh, that I get to cut ahead of a man with such seniority and stature as Senator Cardin. Thank you as for long your as grace. Senator
9: Booker sir. doesn't use physical force to get in between me as he did with Senator <laughs> Tester.
8: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, uh, I'm really excited that this is a, a really, in my opinion, a very important Pride Month here in the United States of America with a lot of the challenges we're seeing that the LGBTQ community persists to face. But I want to talk, uh, Mr. Pressman, if I can, about LGBTQ issues on an international stage, but more specifically in uh, Hungary. Since Viktor Orban's rise to power over a decade ago, Hungarian, the Hungarian government's rolled back a lot of democratic norms, as the chairman mentioned in his comments earlier. Uh, it's diminished the independence of governing institutions meant to provide the, the necessary checks and balances, limiting space for civil society, and has been openly hostile towards vulnerable populations and, and, and specifically the LGBTQ plus population. Orban's government has rescinded legal recognition of transgender people and passed a law banning the use of materials seen as quote-unquote promoting homosexuality and gender gender fluidity at schools. If confirmed, how will you press the Hungarian government to respect the rights of all of her citizens, especially uh, vulnerable, discriminated against groups like the LGBTQ plus population? And and then I just want to add to that, how can the U.S. work with the EU to ensure uh, that the Hungarian government is held accountable uh, for any violations of human rights in its crackdown on civil society in general and LGBTQ groups and in, 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 in specifically?
3: Thank you, Senator, for that question. And uh, I, I cannot emphasize enough
0: um,
3: how important the issues you raise are and uh, they would be uh, the crackdown on civil society generally, but the use of uh, anti-LGBT rhetoric and policies um, in a way that is is about fundamentally trying to exclude a population from the democratic process. Um, And so whether the rhetoric is anti-LGBT, anti-Semitic, anti-ROMA, to the extent that it has the impact of trying to remove a population from its ability to engage in democracy, um, it is a corrosive, it's dangerous, and merits an unequivocal and immediate response from people across society, including at the senior-most levels of government. And so, Senator, if confirmed, you have my commitment that I would engage directly uh, at all levels with the Hungarian government. Thank you. Uh, at all levels with the Hungarian government, but in addition would work uh, very much with civil society who is operating in a uh, limited space to try to make progress on this important set of issues.
8: And, and while I have you, um, and by the way, that assurance uh, gives me great confidence in my my support for you on the floor in the United States Senate as well as in committee, but you, you, you know uh, the challenges we're facing, obviously, in Ukraine. I, I was in Poland and uh, uh just recently in Germany uh but but Hungary has you know taken 700,000 Ukrainian refugees which is a which is a, which is a good thing uh, uh but I'm worried about Hungary's increasing nationalism and the backsliding uh and frankly their cozy relationship with Russia and their dependence on Russia uh, for natural gas and oil I'm skeptical, really, of Hungary's continued actions regarding the war in Ukraine. And so just really quickly, because I still want to get one more question in, if confirmed, how will you work with the Orban government regarding Hungary's uh, approach and response to the war in Ukraine? And if you can do that in 20 seconds, I'd appreciate it. <laughs>
3: I'll, I'll try my best, Senator. Let's, let's, let me just say I, I share your concern. I think that in terms of engaging on this issue, we, we, we have to tackle the problem of Russian influence on the government of Hungary. And to do that, it requires being direct with our concerns. It requires investing in civil society's capacity to render more transparent what those relationships are, including independent media. Um, and it, ta- it requires supporting the European Union and tackling some of the corruption challenges as well.
8: That was an impressive 20 seconds, sir. Uh, you, have a
3: talent, <laughs> you have a talent and a gift in
8: diplomacy that many senators don't share. Really quick, uh, Ms. Shortino, uh, can you just talk to me? I'm I'm, one of my biggest concerns in the Senate right now uh, is the global food crisis. And we've been working very hard, my office along with others on this committee to try to get that addressed. And and so what role can the IMF play in helping countries hit by high fruit prices? And what kind of financial assistance can the IMF provide to the worst affected uh, nations? Uh, If you can just give me that answer. and, And Mr. Chairman, thank you for your
3: indulgence.
2: Absolutely. And that is a huge concern right now. I mean, this is a, a crisis that is really facing a lot of countries and low income countries in particular who already have very high debt levels and very limited fiscal space. So it's really incumbent upon the IMF to come in and provide support. So briefly, you know they can provide policy advice to these countries in terms of how to address their fiscal structure, how to strengthen, strengthen their external position so that they're able to import higher priced goods. Um, they can also provide lending. And as I had mentioned earlier, there's going to be a large program coming up for Egypt. There are uh, several other lending programs in the works that will address, in, in a good way, will provide near-term financing, but will also include conditions that address some of the underlying vulnerabilities that have, have, have gotten these countries into this position in the context of the higher food prices. Um, and, of course, capacity development. The IMF is has very strong capacity development, particularly in the area of fiscal and monetary policy, um, and can help build up these countries' ability to manage higher debt, to manage... Um, you know, fiscal transparency, uh, all of these things at the end will help make these economies more stable and, abil- and able to respond to crises such as these.
8: Thank you. I look forward to working you with you on this issue. I look forward to supporting you um, uh, on the floor and in committee and, and Senator Cardin and Chairman. Thank you for the indulgence of the extra uh, one minute and 45 seconds. Thank you, Senator Booker. Uh, Senator Cardin.
9: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. What I think I'll do, we have a a business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that will take place at 11, so I know we have a limited amount of time. I'm going to ask most of my questions for the record uh, in respect for the time that we have available. Uh, I just want to thank all of our nominees for their willingness to serve. Uh, Mr. Pressman, I enjoyed our conversation, and uh, just to further enlighten our members, uh, I think your background uh, in regards to uh, war crimes is something that could be extremely helpful to us as we uh, look at the challenges that we have in regards to holding uh, Russia accountable for its activities in Ukraine. Um, I do want to just underscore also the point of your background as co-chair of the International Bar Association's Human Rights Law Committee. will serve you well as our representative in Hungary. Um, I just really want to underscore the importance for the U.S. Embassy to be a refuge for the human rights uh, defenders within Hungary. Uh, Hungary presents challenges for us as a NATO ally and as a member of the European Union. uh, The Orban government has not only violated uh, the commitments of the Helsinki final act, I chair the U.S. Helsinki Commission uh, but also represents a challenge for Europe in violating its commitments in regards to uh, the rights um, uh, in the law that they pass affecting the LGBTQ community. Uh, so you're going to have your hands full in Hungary, but I think you're the right person to do that, and I thank
0: you for your willingness to serve. And, Mr. Chairman, I'll ask my questions for the record. Thank you. Well, thank, uh, thank you, uh, Senator. And, uh, and we thank all of our witnesses um, for your... Um, answering of our questions today. Uh, We're we're looking forward to seeing all of the good work which you're going to be doing in your new post. Uh, Members of the committee will have until the close of business tomorrow, Friday, June 24th, to revise and extend their remarks and submit uh, questions for the record with a prompt response from our witnesses to those questions. Uh, We thank uh, everyone for their participation today. With that, this hearing is... (coughs) Adjourned.